This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. This is Christopher Melke, and I'm your host of Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today on our show is Professor Patrick Geary. Professor Geary is at the School of Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, joining us over Skype. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Geary. Chris, I'm delighted to be here. There's so much, I feel, for us to talk about because your research uh, spans such a wide field of interest. But one of the things that I wanted to lead out the discussion with is your work um, Forte Sacra, which is essentially about the theft of saints' relics in the Middle Ages. Would you mind um, starting off telling us a little bit about how and why the relics of saints get stolen in the Middle Ages? Well, this was a project that I did many, many years ago, and although I've moved to other topics, this keeps coming back. It seems to fascinate people. And I began this because I wanted to understand how people interacted with the sacred in their ordinary lives. And one of the most important objects in medieval society, and not only medieval society, are the remains of saints. And I thought that by looking at the cult of relics, the cult of saints' bodies, I could understand better how people integrated them into their world. And I thought that by looking at unusual relations with these objects, specifically thefts, it would allow me to ask questions about how people understood these objects that you would not normally encounter if you were simply looking at the ordinary veneration of saints. So people were worried about these thefts, and so they wrote about them, and they tried to justify what they were doing, or they tried to explain these things. And I began this and found that there were dozens, probably hundreds of cases in the Middle Ages in which people at least claimed to have relics of saints that had been stolen from other Christian churches. Now, this seems very, very odd to us today. And it seemed somewhat questionable to people in the Middle Ages But as I studied this, I found that churches that had bodies of saints that they claimed to have stolen were actually very proud of the fact. Actually, often they had not been stolen, but they wanted to pretend that they had been stolen or to claim that they had been stolen. And I found this a fascinating insight into how specific Christian communities understood their relationship to the sacred but also their relationship to other Christian churches, that they would go to other churches and literally steal the bodies of their patrons and bring them home. So this was the topic that I began to study. And as I did, I saw that many of these thefts had never taken place, but a kind of literary tradition, a way of writing about how a saint ended up in a certain church was to say that once upon a time, many years ago, there was an apparition of a saint to a holy monk in our church 
who complained that he was no longer being properly venerated someplace else, and therefore he wanted to be removed to a church where he would get greater veneration. The monastery then sent a monk or someone to find this saint, and after various adventures, they find the relic. They are able to escape with it, return to their own community, often protected miraculously by the saint, and the saint enters the community. So these are the stories that I began to uncover, and there are quite a few of them that develop between the 9th and the 11th and 12th centuries. That's the most really amazing thing about it is the fact that it makes sense in a sort of way where if the saint is appearing to someone and saying, hey, your neighbors aren't doing what they're supposed to do, the saint appears to members of this community and tells them to do it, I think, at least in the rhetoric and in the chronicles, I think, is a very sort of strong message. It becomes a justification. Yes. Exactly. That and in some cases, the saints are in territory that have been devastated by war. In some cases, there are stories that they are taken from countries that had been conquered by Islam. So St. Mark, stolen from Alexandria to Venice. Mm -hmm. There's still a Christian cult there, but they sneak the body off out of Alexandria and bring to Venice. St. Nicholas is in Mira. He is stolen by Italian merchants who bring him back to Italy. And so sometimes the story is that the church has been abandoned or has been destroyed or at least is not giving the saint the veneration that he or she deserves. And so the saint decides to move. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a story less of a theft than of a saint wishing to move and finding human agency to move to a better place. It's also a way of explaining the presence of a saint of a renowned saint in some fairly obscure location without having to say, oh, well, we bought it, which in fact is often the case because there are relic merchants who travel around Europe selling what they claim are relics. If you say that you bought a saint's body, well, one can be very suspicious about whether this is genuine. But if you say we sent a monk there, he stole it, he was pursued by the community and through the miraculous intervention of the saint, He got away with it. Well, that sounds much better. One of the characters in the Canterbury Tales, I think it's the partner. One of the things that Chaucer jokes about him was the fact that he had vials of pig's blood and bones of pigs that he was passing off as parents. He's selling. So how do you know that these are real relics? How does one ever know if a relic is real? whether it's a human remain or an animal remain, and if that human was a saint? And so what is attached to it is a story that becomes self-authenticating, that this is the saint, this is how it came to this community. And in some cases, we have different stories. Some cases, there's a story that the relic was a gift. Mm -hmm. Then later on, they say, no, no, it wasn't a gift, it was a theft. Because if it's a gift, then the receiver is in the debt of the giver. So there is a hierarchical relationship established between the source and the place the saint ends up. This is often the case with Roman relics. The Mm -hmm. popes have a very careful strategy of sharing relics of Roman martyrs with other churches to tie those churches to Rome. But if, as is a number of times the case, someone says, oh, well, we stole the saint from Rome. We were not given the saint by the pope. 
this is an independent relationship between the saint and that church, rather than just a sign of dependence on the Church of Rome providing these relics as part of papal politics. The Byzantine emperor was also another very key figure in terms of relics that came to Western Europe as gifts. And after the Fourth Crusade in 1204, you know, there's this famous quote by one of the dowager empresses of Byzantium saying that the Byzantine court was in such a poor state that they had nothing left, that the only thing that they had left to sell in order to raise money were these relics. Well, in fact, after 1204, there is a massive, massive theft and distribution of saints' relics Mm -hmm. organized very systematically by the Latin crusaders who conquered the city. As the Byzantines would, would later say, the Muslims would have been less cruel than the Latins. And they pillage the churches, and there is an enormous number of relics that are brought back. And this says something about the absolute failure of Latin Christendom to see Eastern Christendom as part of the same community, the same faithful society that they are legitimate victims of plunder. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that the relics of Constantinople, which, of course, had been acquired by emperors for generations, going back to the time of Constantine, Mm -hmm. are divided up as spoils of the conquest and then sent back to churches all across Western Europe. I think it goes back to that comment uh, that you made earlier, how when the saints would appear to these abbots in these these stories, it would say that the church that has me isn't worshipping me properly, and I think really reinforces that notion of what you just said about complete lack of recognition on the part of the Venetians and the others involved in the Fourth Crusade when Constantinople gets pillaged. Yes, it's a, a sense of complete lack of respect for the Eastern Christian community, that this would be simply normal procedures, spoils of war, the the taking of property in wartime, which is seen as largely legitimate right into the 19th century Mm -hmm. and by many beyond, is extended in the Middle Ages to sacred objects. And Napoleon confiscated the treasury of San Marco in Venice and took this back to France. Some of it was lost and destroyed, but ultimately much of it was returned to Venice. I don't think that he was particularly interested in the relics, in the reliquaries, but he was certainly interested in the gold and silver reliquaries (laughs) that he was acquiring. Of course, the Venetians had stolen many of these themselves from Constantinople. So one might say that this is simply continuing what the Venetians did, although by the early 19th century, there was much objection to this. And ultimately, after Waterloo, the Congress of Vienna required the return of manuscripts stolen by the French We've also been talking about a lot of these very big, massive sort of incidences involving thefts, but I think one of my favorite stories is the one of Hugh of Lincoln biting off the finger of Mary Magdalene and smuggling it from France back to England in his mouth. Yes, this is... uh, Actually, there are a couple of stories of that sort, and this is the individual who has a particular devotion to a saint. He is left alone with the saint, and to him, this 
a possibility of acquiring this particle, this piece of the saint, which is the tangible continuation of the saint's presence in the world after her death, is so important that any other issues of propriety, of justice, disappear. The saint is a person, and he has a relationship with that person, and he is going to take that person or part of that person with him home And he just doesn't care how he's getting it. We should not assume that everybody would consider this fine. Mm -hmm, Of course. (laughs) People who have uh, the body are not too enthusiastic about this. And churches have guards. Mm -hmm. They put up physical barriers to access the saint's relics. But there's always the tension that if you have a saint's relic in a reliquary or in a sarcophagus that cannot be seen then the faithful might wonder whether it's really there. So you have to make it visible at certain times in certain ways, Mm -hmm. but that's also making it vulnerable to this kind of operation. So you have the individual devotee like you, you have an institution where the cult of a saint develops, and as that develops, they have a desire to have the saint physically present and It may simply be a legend that, oh, well, here he is. Well, how did he get here? He was stolen. Or they may actually send someone off to to try to do the deed. And for the pilgrims, for the people visiting uh, these relics, the, some of the the reliquaries that you see on various museums, there's often these uh, windows of rock crystal or um, early glass wherein the reliquary is protecting the object, but at the same time, the people passing by would be able to see a very small uh, sort of portion of it, but in order to yes. see proof that it's there. I do have a question out of ignorance. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the thefts of bodies of the saints. Is it just body parts that are stolen um, in this period from the 9th to 12th century? Or do we also have other aspects of them stolen, like clothing or holy objects related to them that aren't necessarily parts of the body? What we primarily hear about in the th- in these accounts, which become stereotypical literary accounts, is the theft of bodies. But what the body is is very, very obscure. Sometimes the text will make it sound like it's an intact body. Mm-hmm. It may just be uh, dust. It may be bits of uh, bone, like the tooth. It may be a finger. But certainly there are other sacred objects which are stolen and which circulate. We have exactly this going on in the Fourth Crusade when objects, precious uh, liturgical vessels, find their way to the West. And thus there are a number of churches that claim that they have the Holy Grail. These are presumably liturgical cups, chalices, and the like, or maybe not even liturgical, that find their way from Constantinople to the West and legends identifying them as sacred objects form around them. So there are a number of churches in which the church inventories will signal the presence of objects that are then associated with saints or even with Christ. Unfortunately, we will have to take a short break, but uh, we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Milkey, and joining us today is Professor Patrick Geary. Thank you for joining us today. Delighted to be here. 
So um, moving on from the theft of relics, I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit more about your involvement in the St. Gall Monastery. Now, I'm not as uh, familiar with this project, so would you mind telling us a little bit about your sort of involvement in the project? Absolutely. The St. Gall Monastery was one of the important 9th century monasteries in Alemania. It is remarkable, not that it was the richest monastery or the most brilliant monastery in the ninth century, but it is remarkable in that its library and its archives have survived virtually 100% from its time of foundation in the 8th century right throughout history. So the books, the charters are all extant. And so it's a very remarkable institution. The monastery itself was secularized. It no longer exists. The churches from the the Middle Ages are all gone Mm -hmm. and replaced by a Baroque church. But what survives is the library, its archive, and the most extraordinary object, which is the so-called Plan of St. Gall, a very large sheet of parchment, actually five pieces of parchment sewn together, which present in elaborate detail a two-dimensional plan of a monastery. Everything from the monastery church, the refectory, the dormitories for the monks, the novitiate, the abbot's house, down to the toilets that would be attached to the different buildings, the chicken coop, the duck coop, the stalls for animals, workshops. It's a complete image of a monastery from uh, the early 9th century. A really extraordinary object, completely unique, that has fascinated scholars for decades. And at one time, we know that from the inscription on the document, it was prepared in the monastery of Reichenau, which is on an island in Lake Constance, the Mm -hmm. the Bodensee. And it was prepared for the monastery of St. Gall, which was being rebuilt at the time. So some have thought this is a blueprint. This is a plan of the monastery, exactly how it should be built. Some have thought that this was the result of Carolingian centralization, that this was a plan drawn up under Carolingian imperial authority. This is how to make a monastery, and this should be sent out to anyone doing a monastery, a revision, or founding a new monastery, and this is the official plan of monasteries. It has been the object of study for centuries with people trying to create three-dimensional models of the plan of St. Gall, of extraordinary attempt to figure out exactly what this would have looked like as though this were actually the monastery. So this has fascinated people for a very long time. And I originally had the idea, wouldn't it be wonderful using uh, modern computer technology to create a virtual reality model of this monastery? This was the original plan, but we very quickly realized that the plan of St. Gall is an extraordinary object, but it's not a blueprint. We do not have thicknesses of walls. We do not have elevations. We Mm. do not have building materials. Uh, The possibility of creating imaginatively a reconstruction of this is simply not possible based on the plan itself. 
Moreover, we perhaps shouldn't talk about Reconstruction because there's no evidence that this monastery ever existed as drawn. In fact, there was a, there are two drawings. There was an early drawing that was then erased and another of the church, then another different one imposed on top of it, and then gradually the other portions were added. So this may be seen more as a meditation on an ideal monastery presented at the time that the abbot was going to be rebuilding the monastery, drawn by people on Reichenau, but not really a plan to actually do it. And mm-hmm. in terms of its organization, there were 64 buildings. They're put together in a rectangle. They, this is not how they would have actually been spread out around an actual geographical location. So what we decided to do was to create a database on this plan that would allow one to explore the material culture of Carolingian monasticism. So with funding from the Andrew Mellon Foundation in the United States, a team of scholars that I organized spent several years creating an extraordinarily detailed photograph of the map that allows you to look at the map in greater detail than you could with your own eyes, to see every pinprick, every line, every erasure, every dot, as well as copying all of the inscriptions on it, all of the tituli of the manuscript. And so that one can study this manuscript in a way that has never been possible. Then we create a series of other databases on the material culture of Carolingian monasticism, the vocabulary of materiality, images of objects from St. Gall, but other monasteries as well, that then relate to the plan. All of the models that have been attempted to be created of the plan in the past that appear as three-dimensional images in our website. This is saintgallplan.org is the website. And so over a number of years, we created this very detailed tool for researching Carolingian monastic history, including how the plan was created, without saying this was the monastery or trying to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. So that was phase one of what we were doing. And I can talk more about the second phase if you would like. But you might have questions about this. The plan of St. Gall is the foundation for building this website and for the research. It, it sounded like you said that this is something that, you know, would be useful in terms of comparing the material culture of Carolingian monastery. So if, for instance, I was interested in researching the toilets of the monasteries in this time period, would I be able to go to the website and immediately be able to start accessing information on the subject uh, from there? Absolutely. You could examine the schematic drawings of all of the toilets of the monastery. We also have related architectural material and archaeological material from other sites uh, where we can, you know, we don't have the archaeological material from St. Gall. There was mm-hmm. one dig done many years ago and never published. I see. And there is currently an archaeological dig going on at St. Gall, but the results of that dig have not yet been made public. But you can look at other sites where this has been done. We have photographs and material from published sources that you can then use to correlate to what's going on at St. Gall. You can also then look at sources, Latin sources from the ninth century that talk about material culture, agriculture, objects, and and so forth. 
that appear in contemporary text as well as in the plan itself. So it's a, a jumping off point for all kinds of research into Carolingian monasteries. And then there is a database of the plans and basic bibliography for all of the other Carolingian era churches in the German-speaking world. And we hope eventually to be able to add those from Italy and those from from France as well. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I think being able to compare this data is really of utmost importance, especially if you're interested in researching an area on the fringes um, where things might have been different or for practical reasons, things might have been changed or turned around. You could have access to this. Regarding the second phase of the research, my training is as a historian and archaeologist, so I have to ask, will publishing the archaeological results be part of phase two of this plan, or is that something completely different? Unfortunately, we have no direct connection with the archaeological material. The I see. First, uh, the only excavation inside the church was done many, many years ago by a Swiss archaeologist. My understanding is that under Swiss law, he has control of that material. To my knowledge, there is only one very brief article that he has ever published from that. The current dig is going on not in the church but outside, and that may be uncovering 9th century structures, and there is some hope that we might see that indeed there is some relationship to the structures that we see in the plan. But that's a project which is being done, I think, very carefully and scientifically, when they do have results, we would certainly like to link anything that they have done to our site. But for the time being, we really have no real knowledge of what has been found in, in the course. Now, this is not going to be, you can't have a comprehensive dig of the whole area because it's very built up with the Baroque Church and the buildings that were the successor buildings of the monastery. So unfortunately, we will never be able to see if the chicken coops are where they're supposed <laughs> to be and if the brewery is in the site that the plan suggests and so forth. Could you tell us a little bit more about phase two for the well, St. Gall plan? Yeah. Well, for the phase one, as I say, is an examination of the material culture, the architecture, the building materials, but glass products, uh, the materiality of monastic life. But then we said, well, the monastery that produced this document is Reichenau. It's for St. Gall. We should try to understand the mental environment within which this plan was created. And the way to do that would be to reconstitute the library from Reichenau and the library from St. Gall in order to allow one to see the mental horizons of the monks who produce this plan and the monks who receive it. For St. Gall, this is fairly easy to do because, as I say, perhaps 90% of the manuscripts are still right there in the Abbey Library. Right. And there is an excellent project being done in Switzerland to digitize, ultimately, all Swiss medieval manuscripts. And this project is digitizing, among other monasteries and institutions in Switzerland, the uh, manuscripts of St. Gall. 
Reichenau is a mess. Reichenau was secularized in the early 19th century, if not late 18th century. The manuscripts have been scattered all over the world. So we decided to try to find as many 9th century manuscripts based on the catalogs that we have of what was in the library in Reichenau in the 9th century and reconstitute those online so that one can, in a sense, go to the library of Reichenau and pull the books off the shelf and look at them. Again, with funding from the Mellon Foundation, we subventioned the work of the team doing the St. Gall manuscripts so that they could digitize the Carolingian manuscripts. We then went to Karlsruhe, where most of the Reichenau manuscripts are, but also to Stuttgart, to Vienna, to Paris, to Naples, around Europe, where the Reichenau manuscripts are. We then reanalyzed the content in order to provide metadata on each manuscript. So if you go to our website, you can look up a St. Gall or a Reichenau manuscript. You can either search by, by content, by author, or by shelf number. You can look at the manuscript in extreme detail, again, so that uh, using a technology called Zoomify, you can look from the most detailed point of hair follicles in the parchment Mm -hmm. or move back to an entire page. And we have the metadata, so not simply going on old 18th and 19th century catalogs, checking exactly what is in each manuscript with bibliography and codicological information and bibliography on the document, the text contained in the manuscript. So the result in part two has been to create the mental world of ninth century monasticism and to provide these two libraries virtually intact so that you can actually see what texts did these monks have in the ninth century? What was their mental horizon in terms of literate culture in Reichenau and in St. Gallen? That sounds fantastic and sounds like a lot of work as well. We are going to have to take a very short break for now, but uh, we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. You're listening to Past Perfect on CEU Medieval Radio. I'm Christopher Milke, and joining us today from the Institute for Advanced Studies is Patrick Geary. Furthering the conversation on the sort of research that you've been involved in, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ongoing work that you're doing on migration and DNA analysis. So could you tell us a little bit about the sort of work that DNA studies can tell us about the Middle Ages? For the last 20 years or so, there has been a lot of interest in the so-called migration period, the period that in German is called the Volkerwanderung, the wandering of the peoples. In French, it's called uh, les invasions barbares, the barbarian invasions. And there is a lot of questions about what were these migrations, were these migrations, were these invasions, were there really significant population changes at the end of antiquity? And what did that have to do with the end of the Roman Empire, the creation of new polities in Europe? Did the barbarians destroy Rome? Were there barbarians that actually had a significant demographic impact on Western Europe? And this is a question that has been discussed really for over 200 years. Mm -hmm. And our sources are limited to very sparse 
largely literary, often polemical texts that don't really give us a very clear idea of what went on, and archaeological material, which is very rich, but very ambiguous. We can see in the text descriptions that this people invaded or that there's such and such a people were at such and such a place. But what is a people? Is this really just an army? Are these barbarian auxiliaries used in internal civil wars? Or are these actually large populations of men, women, and children moving into the empire either in quest of better lives or fleeing their enemies. Archaeology shows cultural change. It shows certain kinds of material culture that appear in different parts of Europe. It shows different funerary customs, building traditions. But it's a proxy for population movements. Cultures can move without large population movements. But culture can move by imitation, it can move by trade, it can move by, by changes of style. So this is a controversial issue that continues to be debated with inadequate sources. And the one source that increasingly people are turning to is genetic, because we all carry within us the history of all of our ancestors all the way back before humans. Recently, a variety of historians have been saying, well, look, we have to, we look at written sources, we look at material sources, we have to look at genomic sources as well to try to see if this can give us a better view or at least a different view of population changes in the migration period. Now, some of this is very dangerous. Some of this goes toward a kind of essentializing the borders on racism. And unfortunately, there are modern politicians in Europe and elsewhere who are only too eager to think that they can use genetics to find out who really is a descendant of these people and who is not. This is bad science and bad history. But properly used, I think it is possible to analyze genetic data to give us some more information. So I have created a project that involves archaeologists, geneticists, and historians in the United States, in Italy, in Hungary, in the Czech Republic, in Austria, in Germany. And we are trying to develop techniques to look at the DNA of migration period populations in order to get an idea from that material of what these populations look like before and after their putative migrations. And we're doing this in a test case because this has never really been done before using ancient DNA, that is DNA from cemeteries, we're taking as our test case the Longobardi, the Lombards, mm-hmm. who, according to written sources, appear around 500 in what is today Moravia, essentially. By the 520s, 540s, we're told they are then in the area of Budapest and to Vienna, and so the Danube bend and this area. Then, according to literary sources, in 568, King Alboin takes all of his people, men, women, and children, and they invade Italy, conquer Italy, and establish the Lombard Kingdom. So we have a story from texts about origin and then a movement. We have taken 800 samples from cemeteries in Italy, in Hungary, in the Czech Republic, and in Austria. 
of persons who by their archaeological profiles appear to be what archaeologists label as Langobards, as well as samples of people who by their archaeological profile are roughly contemporaneous, 5th or 6th century, but not Lombards. Are they Gepids? Are they Robans? Are they something else? We don't really know. And we don't know that the Lombards were, would have considered themselves Lombards either. That's just an archaeological category based on material culture. What we're in the process of doing is taking these 800 samples from Italy and from Pannonia and sequencing them. We've done a preliminary sequencing of the mitochondria in a subset of these. Now, that is the, the genetics that one inherits from one's mother. So it gives you one line going back through history of mother to mother to mother to mother. And this is what has traditionally been done in ancient DNA studies because there's a lot of copies of the mitochondrial DNA in every cell. But that only gives you one line, just as if you look at Y chromosome, that's inherited from the father. You simply know father, 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 all the way back. Of course. But that says, someone said, that's like trying to read one page of a 500-page book and write a book review. What we're trying to do now, using a special advanced technique called next-generation sequencing, is to take a look at the nuclear DNA. That's the DNA that recombines in the process of reproduction to get a very, very rich sense of these people. And what we're going to try to do with this, this kind of uh, next generation sequencing of the nuclear DNA, look at different types of sites in the genome with tens of thousands of data points that give us a very fine textured image of these individuals that we can then compare with others. So within a cemetery, we should be able to tell our people as closely related as second cousins. Who are the, what is the relationship among these people in a cemetery? Are these people more closely related if they are buried as Longobards in Italy? Are they more closely related to people in the Longobard cemeteries in Pannonia than they are to the non-Longobards in Italy. Or in Pannonia, are the Longobards more closely related to those whose burial people would classify as Gepid or late Roman or Germanic than they are to Italy? So, so what, are the, what do these population groups look like? Are the men and women drawn from different communities? Often in a migration, you have men who migrate and then they find women wherever they're going. Is that what goes on here, or do they really move men and women together, these closed population groups? So these are the kinds of questions that we're trying to answer through this DNA analysis that will let us get, at least in this first case of the Lombards, a sense of what these populations are, their relationship to the regions of origin, to the region in which we find them today, and give us a sense of whether these the people buried in Italian tombs who are Lombards, so-called, are genetically the same as the other Italians, but they have become Lombards, possibly under the influence of military success of the Lombards, or are these really people who have migrated? Are the women the daughters of local Italians, or are these women whose mothers and fathers came from Pannonia? These are the kinds of questions we're trying to do in this very international, very complicated process. And then we compare our results with those produced by 
isotopic analysis that can give us information about where people may have come from, as well as historical analysis. So it's an integrated interdisciplinary project of physical anthropology, genetics, and history. I wanted to ask you about the isotopes in a bit, but I think it should be really emphasized that it's only been really rather recently that academics have really started to question the relationship between the material culture that you find in the cemetery and the sort of quote-unquote people involved. Because in some of the older literature, if you look at someone who has, let's say, a fibula of the Avar people in the Carpathian Basin, it was commonly assumed that if someone's buried with an Avar type of brooch than that they were probably an Avar person. I think recently there's been a lot of questioning over this relationship, over the type of material culture that people have, even dragging it out further, the type of material culture that people are buried with, considering that burials don't represent necessarily a sort of everyday costume for what people were wearing. That is certainly certainly true. A burial, first of all, represents what not the dead, but what the living want to represent. Absolutely. So you, you're not this is you're not getting a passport of an individual when you dig up his or her tomb. You are getting an image of something about what the survivors wanted this person, how they wanted to represent this person. The materials that you find in the tomb, uh, as you say traditionally were interpreted as typical lumber. And how do you know it's lumbered? Because the set to text say the lumbers were here. So what we find here must be lumbered. Well, that's problematic. There's no clear relationship between these two. What made a lumbered a lumbered? Why a lumbered felt that he, or he was a lumbered may not be represented in the material culture. The material culture may simply say, I'm a warrior or I'm a wealthy person. It may not say something about, it may not be a way to express their ethnic or even political allegiance. It's often assumed that rich burials or wealthy people, now we're saying, well, it may be that when people are, say, between 18 and 30, you get the richest burials for men and women. Younger people and older people have less in the tomb. Well, that's problematic because people wanted to establish clear hierarchies. So there are all sorts of problems with the material culture, which should not be discounted, but it has to be juxtaposed with other kinds of evidence. And one kind of evidence will be genetic evidence, just as you say, isotopic. Strontium isotopes uh, are very useful for looking at indigenous and exotic persons. Did the person live and die in a place with the same strontium profile in the water and the soil as in his teeth? You may not know where they come from, but you can say this person did not come from here, or they probably did come from here. Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at migration. And there you can say, well, does a women's strontium profile parallel that of the men, or is it different? But with genetics, we can then add simply another layer and say these people seem to form a fairly tight cluster genetically. These are outliers. And then we correlate that with other kinds of characteristics to see can we build a multidimensional picture. The strontium is also very important in terms of the age of the people involved because one's strontium profile is made as one's an adolescent. So around like 18 or 20, it it stops, um, as my understanding is. So 
if someone's in the process of moving after they've become an adult or if someone uproots themselves earlier in life, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how, how that's something that can be affected by it. Precisely. That is one of the one of the very interesting things to say, did these people come of age in this place or did they come from somewhere else? Because the, the strontium is laid down in childhood and then it is pretty much fixed. But we don't have good fine grained maps of mm-hmm. strontium across Europe so that we can say, ah, this person probably came from here, there or the other place. Right. We just don't know that. Mm-hmm. But when one does a, a detailed study of a cemetery, taking samples of the flora, the fauna, the water, the soil of the site, one can at least build an image there. And the same with our genetics. We, we can't do everything. And this is an extremely expensive process. And we don't frankly have the hundreds of thousands of euro yet to do the full scale study. But what we're hoping to be able to do is to begin a database which, like our St. Gall project, which is completely public and free to anyone, we will create a database of our cemeteries, of our 800 individuals, and there will be other projects that are also looking at migration, and our hope is that people will be able to use our data to link their data to it to make comparisons, and it can grow almost Uh, like a wiki, as different teams can turn to our database, add to it, and perhaps someday we might have a very interesting fine-grained genetic map of Europe in the migration period. That's sort of the the long-term hope. It sounds absolutely fascinating, and uh, we look forward to hearing the results of it. We will have to take a short break, but we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. This is Past Perfect, and we've been very, very lucky today to be joined by Professor Patrick Geary. Um, We've had a very long talk so far about the many, many things you've been involved in, and for the last little concluding segment we have here, I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about your work, The Myth of Nations. Well, that is a book that I wrote for a general audience. It's not the typical scholarly monograph that's written for a small circle of professionals. And I wrote it because after many years of contact in uh, Central Europe and Western Europe, I was increasingly concerned by the kind of ideological uses of the Middle Ages that seemed to be growing since 1989. And as a medieval historian, I was rather disturbed to see the period that I deal with, which is the early Middle Ages, suddenly becoming a political football, a political issue within certain kinds of nationalist discourses as European nations reemerged from the Soviet umbrella And as Western European nations began to realize the problems that migration, particularly from North Africa and the Middle East, were generating within their societies. And over and over, this this recall of the Middle Ages, in ways that I found very bizarre, Mm -hmm. I found difficult. So I wrote this book to talk about how, from a medieval perspective, these identities, while very real, of peoples were very real identities, but that they were also constructed 
constructed and changed, malleable, so that people could maintain the same terminology, but the content would change. People could disappear. Other peoples could emerge. Peoples could change who they were or what it meant to be who they were in very complicated ways. It seemed to be denied by a lot of national movements in our present world. I wrote this book as a plea to re-understand medieval history in a more creative way. Mm -hmm. This is a problem that develops from the 19th century, from the birth of nationalism in the aftermath of the French Revolution. It develops initially as a romantic movement, becomes, uh, is not even terribly political, it becomes politicized. In some ways, it, it leads to the horrors of the National Socialist period, but it disappears for a, over a generation. And now we see the whispers of this coming again. The book has been praised and criticized. It's been translated into, I think, 13 languages or so. The responses have been from very laudatory to, I was called in a review of the Albanian tr uh, translation, a neo-Bolshevik. Oh my. Uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or, or an insult. I suspect they didn't mean it as a compliment. Right. And it has created uh, some interesting discussions about the relationship between the past and the present the mm -hmm. difference between the past and the present, but the importance of the past in the present without simply being a model for what the present and the future should be. Whenever I get asked, oh, why on earth should, why on earth am I studying the Middle Ages? My answer is always because it's very important and it's something that is still very important. It's very important. It's very important, obviously, in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. It's very, very important in Hungary because as humans, we think historically. This is how we understand who we are in terms of our past. But too often, we simply construct that past to fit our present needs. So medieval history is really a battleground in portions of Europe today. And professional historians, but also simply educated people, have to take a, learn to take a critical stance vis-a-vis -vis what they hear in popular media about the past and how the past is in some way impinges on the present and the future. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's time for the show to end, but it's the, this is something that I think we could go on and on for hours talking about. For now, I will have to say thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Geary. It's been a real pleasure having you thank as a you. guest on our thank show. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, and maybe we can continue this another time. Oh, I would like that very much. And for the listeners back home, uh, be sure to tune in to us on our website at medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. Bye.